Welcome, and thank you for listening to Sandy Creek Stirrings. I'm your host, Joshua Jimenez. And if you're going to win souls, you've got to love souls. In spite of their meanness, in spite of the way they look, in spite of everything, you've got to seek to bring souls to Jesus Christ because you love them, because Jesus loved them, and because Jesus died for them, and you're trying to bring them to the Son of God. The Bible says in Psalm 84, 11, my last verse, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I based my whole life on that, that it pays to serve God, and I believe that with all my heart. God has given us a guidebook. God has given us a directional map. And that guidebook, that map, is the precious Word of God. Listen, don't just go and sit in the pew. Find some way to serve and serve as a family. Be a part of everything at church. And when you learn to love what God loves, um, your children will learn to love it as well. Homes are not that spiritually strong. We're getting overtaken by the world quickly, but unfortunately, we're pumping all the sewage in. You know, we're letting the world in when that ought to be a haven. In episode number 143, we began talking about humanism and what it looks like in normal, everyday life. We began talking about some different worldviews, some different movements, and why humanism as a, as a thought process, as an agenda, is actually a grand attack on Christianity and why it's such a deadly enemy to what you and I as Christians are trying to accomplish for the cause of Christ. And so if you missed that episode, let me encourage you to go back and listen to episode number 143, and that was entitled Humanism, What Does It Look Like? Humanism, What Does It Look Like? That was episode number 143. That episode is going to be a precursor to this episode today. So you need to go back. If you have not listened to that episode, go back and listen to that episode and then come back and listen to this one. Today is going to be humanism. How do you answer the humanist? How do you answer the humanist or answering humanism? Now, just as a very brief kind of short review, we talked last, uh, last time when we discussed humanism, we talked about um, the trifecta, the trinity of humanistic thinking. And those thought processes are, number one, when man says there is no God. When man says there is no God. Number two, when man says that he knows better than God. And then number three, when man says he does not need God. All of those are thought processes of humanist thinking. Now, what a humanist will do is, is they will disguise what they are in many different types of worldviews. For instance, we talked last time about a few movements, a few worldviews that are truly humanistic at their core. We talked about Scientology, about Buddhism, about Hinduism, about Hare Krishnas, about atheism, about agnosticism, the coexist, you know, the bumper sticker, coexist movement, their agenda. All of these at their core are nothing more than humanist movements. And each of these worldviews, every single one, promote humanistic thinking and humanistic living, which, by the way, is nothing more than a living for self, based in pride. And what humanism does is it tries to tear down Christianity and try to merge religion and truth which with really what is no truth and no religion at all. And so kind of what we want to tackle today is, though, how do we answer the humanist? How do we answer the atheist who says there is no God? 
How do we answer the agnostic who says, you know, there may be a God, but he wants nothing to do with me? How do we answer the coexist believer who rejects the Bible? And here's what it all boils down to. What makes you and I so sure that we're right? What makes you and I so sure that we're trusting in the one true God? I mean, the Hindus, you know, serve 330 million deities, I believe is the correct number, 330 million. Why do we reject all of their deities and say, no, this God over here that we serve is the one true God? How can we be so sure? And, and when we begin to talk to a humanist about that, no matter how they disguise themselves as an atheist or an agnostic or whatever it may be, where do we even begin? Where do we even start to talk to them about God and about what we believe. So it's a really tough question because, you know, most one thing you're going to have an issue is, is most humanist worldviews reject the Bible. So a lot of times we can't say, well, here's why I believe this, because the Bible says and da-da-da, they'll say, well, I don't believe the Bible. I reject the Bible. So what do we say then? And uh, where do we even begin to prove our point that we serve the one true God? and we believe his word to be true. Where do we even begin? And so that's what we're going to talk about today, how to answer an atheist, how to answer an agnostic, how to answer someone who is nothing more than a humanist at their core. So that's kind of our episode topic for today. I want to thank you for being a listener of Sandy Creek Stirrings. If you've enjoyed this podcast, if it's been a blessing to you over the time that we've been here, moving on to 150 episodes very quickly. But if it's been a blessing to you, let me encourage you to go on whatever podcast platform you listen on. Maybe it's Apple Podcasts, maybe Google Podcasts, whatever it may be. And go ahead and click that like or that subscribe button. And all of those episodes will go directly to you anytime a new one is released. And, of course, we released episodes every Tuesday and every Friday morning. And so every Tuesday and Friday morning, a new episode is released covering something practical, something applicable, something that you can use, guaranteed you can use in your daily life. So how do you answer a humanist? I want to give you a couple opening thoughts. Number one, whenever you're talking to anybody who is a humanist or really any conversation, you need to try and get in the Word of God as much as possible because it will not return void. The only thing promised in a conversation with a humanist that will not return void is the Word of God. God said in Isaiah 55 and verse number 11, He said, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. So you know what? They may reject the Word of God. They may say, I don't believe the Word of God. Your goal as a Christian is to still try and slip it in as much as possible. You say, how do I do that, though? We'll talk about that in just a second. But you try and slip it in as much as possible because that, God promises, is what at the end of the day, when they lay their head on the pillow at night, that, the Word of God, is what will convict them and what will work on their heart. So you want to try and slip in as much of the Bible as possible. Number two, the goal. The goal is to get a seed of doubt in their mind. Most of the time when you are talking with a humanist, maybe it's an atheist, all right? As I said, a humanist at its core, he says there is no God, which is a humanist thought pattern. Um, but let's say you talk to an atheist. Most of the time, 
You're not going to win that atheist right there in your first conversation. Maybe you knocked on the door. Most of the time, they're not going to leave the door open long enough to talk to you. Maybe you have a large family gathering, and maybe there's a family member, old Uncle Bob. And Uncle Bob has been an atheist his whole life, and he sits down with you and he says, I know you're a Christian. Why should I believe you? Well, most of the times, you're not going to win Uncle Bob right there. You're not going to win him to the Lord most times. I'm not saying the Lord can't do that. It's been done before. But most times, you're not going to win him to the Lord right then and there. And one of the best outcomes you can plan and hope for is that you would plant a seed of doubt in their mind. So when they lay their head on their pillow at night, God can begin to convict them and say, you know, that was a really good point he made. Maybe there is a God. And when you begin to plant that seed of doubt, questions will come to their mind. They will come back to you. Number three, number three, your testimony. What God has done in your life is one of the most effective tools you have. What God has done in your life, salvation, you know, the change God has made, answered prayers, provisions, you know, the answered needs that God's done. Tell them about answered prayer. Tell them what God has done in your life. Tell them how God has changed your life. Those are personal proofs of God. Those are personal proofs of God, and you need those to share with other people, which encourages you to be a prayer warrior, be praying and seeing answered prayer. And so as we go into this today, that fourth final thought I want to give is you say, well, what's the best answer to give to a humanist? I can't tell you that. The reason why is is because you have to be careful that you're not just answering the question. You have to make sure you answer the person asking the question. You see, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, sometimes a humanist may have rejected the idea of God because of some sort of tragedy that happened in their life. You know, talking about, you know, look at how the sun is perfectly positioned. You know, uh, there had to be a creator for that. That may not help them right there. It may answer their question on the proof of the existence of God. But I'm not going after the root problem. And that's what I really want to get at. I want to get at the root problem of why they have rejected a God who has given so many proofs of his existence. And so this is why it's so important to be listening to the Holy Spirit while you're talking to someone. Maybe you're talking to Uncle Bob. You need to remember 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. In meekness, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. In meekness. That word meekness, by the way, not only deals with being meek, being humble. By the way, you will never win a humanist to the Lord if you are mean and you are grouchy and you are just... Uh, upset during the conversation. And you may say, well, they're upset and they're angry with me. Let them be angry. The Bible says in Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turneth away wrath. Um, a, a word spoken in due season, how good it is. And so you need to be meek. You need to be humble. But that word meekness literally means, look it up, um, it means in God's timing, meaning that you need to be following the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will give you the best answer to give to the humanist. I can't tell you what the best answer is, but the Holy Spirit can. And as long as you're on right terms with the Holy Spirit, and you're following Him, and you're allowing Him to guide you, He will give you the best answer to give to a humanist. All right? So now let's get into the actual content. What do we say? What do we talk about? What do we do? And so what the very first thing you and I have to understand before we start talking to a humanist 
whether that be, as I said, an atheist, a skeptic, an agnostic, a, a, a Hindu, a Buddhist, one of the first things that you and I have to understand is that everything we believe about God, about creation, about morality, eternity, our need for salvation, relationships with God, all of our, if I can classify it like this, all of our religious beliefs hinge on two items. All of our religious beliefs stand on two legs. You lose one of those legs and everything will come crumbling down. You need both legs to stand on. Everything you believe about God, about all the things we just mentioned, stand on two legs. And so to answer a humanist, they don't have those two legs that you and I stand so securely on. All right? So we begin by talking about what two things we stand on. And God gave us a very clear, very clear outline for how we answer. Very clear. We must begin, I believe, when we start a conversation with a humanist, we must begin where God began. Now, some of these situations can vary a little bit, because if you're out soul winning, you knock on an atheist door, he's probably going to close it pretty quick. He says, you know, why should I believe you? I'm a humanist. I don't believe in God. Why should I believe you? I think one of the quickest and best things you can say to them is, well, I believe in God. Why should I believe you? Why is it that every time the atheist says, why should I believe you? We fall back on our heels like, oh my, what am I going to say now? We'll pose the question right back to them. Why should I believe an atheist? Because truth is, most atheists don't truly know their stance and why they're an atheist. A lot of them don't. And then the other thing is, most of their proofs, their evidences of atheism, are so riddled with holes and so weak, they're easy to see through. So if you're just knocking on doors, I think that can be one of the best responses. But we're going to kind of look at today like a, like you're talking to Uncle Bob at the dinner table. You know, everybody else is talking about other stuff, and you're talking to Uncle Bob. He says, why should I believe you? I think we start where God began. And God clearly gives an outline because the very beginning of God's Word starts off with the first answer I believe a humanist needs. And you can find that right there at the very beginning of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Right off the bat, right off the bat, God tackled humanism in one of the most simplest verses of all Scripture when he said, in the beginning, God the verse immediately contradicts, you know, true humanist movements like atheism, which says there is no God, polytheism, which says there are many gods, pantheism, which says creation is God, agnosticism, which says man cannot know God, skepticism, which says there might be a God, fatalism, which says everything happened because of fate, and then evolution, that, you know, the Big Bang created everything. Everything came from nothing, um, which evolution, by the way, nothing more than a humanist movement. They say there is no God. They say we know better than God. They say we don't need God. So I believe when we're talking to a humanist, we start right off the bat with very simply where God started. God said, in the beginning, God. And you say, that's great. I, I agree with you. But what do I do when they reject the Bible? They don't believe the Word of God. I can't hold Genesis 1-1 up as evidence that there is a God. They may reject the Word of God. All right, whoever you're talking to, Uncle Bob may reject the Word of God. But I dare say that a man truly seeking the truth, he can't deny that a God exists. The reason why is there's so many proofs. And if I were able to sit down and have a conversation with a humanist like, let's just use the example we've been using of Uncle Bob, I would begin where God began. And so I would begin with proving, giving some proofs of the existence of God. You say, well, what proofs can we give of the existence of God? I believe the very first one is the one that God pointed out. 
Notice what Genesis 1.1 says. Say it with me. It says, in the beginning, God created. Notice, in the beginning what? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. I believe the very first thing we can point to as a proof of the existence of God is the fine-tuning of nature points to a creator. How nature all works in such harmony together, both the human body and nature itself, it's just like a finely tuned instrument. Everything works perfectly together. I believe that's the very first proof we can give of God is creation itself. Now, remember how I talked earlier, you try and slip in as much of the Word of God as possible? So if I was sitting down with Uncle Bob, I said, Bob, Uncle Bob, there's many proofs that there is a God. For instance, there's creation. Now, Uncle Bob, I know, I know that you reject the Word of God, you reject the Bible and say it's not true. But what's interesting is in Psalm 19.1, God said that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. You know, it's just interesting that God would say that creation is an evidence, it's a proof of God. And Uncle Bob, that's the first thing I want to point at, is creation. And notice what I did in that conversation. I told him, I know that you reject the Word of God. I still slipped it in anyway, because that won't return void. You know, when we look at creation, man looks around, he sees the human body and how incredible it is. He sees, you know, just nature and all these different things. He looks around at the grand working and the fine-tuning of the universe. He has to arrive at one of two conclusions. He has to. Number one, he either arrives at the conclusion that, number one, there was an intelligent designer. There had to be a, there had to be a creator for this creation. There had to be someone who designed this grand design. That's the first conclusion. The second conclusion they could come to is it was all chance and fate, which is what you know basically evolution teaches. It was all chance and fate, and that's just the way it was. The problem is I have a big, big problem with someone like a humanist who believes that everything came into existence because of fate and chance. The problem I have is, Uncle Bob, there has never been an intelligent design in history that happened by chance and fate. It did not have someone who designed it. For instance, I'm wearing a watch right now. I didn't go into a watch shop one day, take some extra parts, throw them in a box, shake them up together, and out came a watch that was keeping time. It wasn't fate, it wasn't chance that my watch keeps time and keeps good time at that. Someone had to design the watch. Someone had to know what they were doing. Someone had to fine-tune the watch to keep good time. Somebody had to design the watch. A computer always has a maker. A guy didn't go into a computer shop one day, start screwing random parts together, and all of a sudden, bloop, you've got mail. That's not the way it works. There had to be a maker. There had to be someone who designed it. There's never been a building built that didn't have a builder. Here's what fate and chance produces. Here's what fate and chance looks like in the real world, what evolution teaches. If we could reproduce evolution, we could take the biggest box of dynamite, put it on a big mountain, hit kablooey, and all of a sudden, after all the smoke and dust clears, there's a grand building standing there. That's the way evolution would look in real life. The problem is... That has never happened. The reason why is every building has a builder. There's never been anything in history that has an intelligent design that did not have a designer. There's never been anything in history that had an intelligent design that happened by chance and fate. Yet you want to tell me the human eyeball, which is more, more intricate than, than a bazillion computers, 
the the timing of the seasons, how they work perfectly together, the positioning of the sun, you know, too far away we'd be we'd be freezing to death, too too close and we'd burn up. You know, the way the moon is with the tides and all these different things. You want to tell me that all of that hap- happened by chance and fate, but nothing else in the world ever has. To me, it just sounds like a rejection of God. You say I'm crazy for believing in a designer when you say everything else but creation had one. Can I just say, this building must have had an architect. This design must have had a designer. This kingdom must have had a king. And this family must have had a father. There had to be somebody behind it. Number two, we can also point to, as a proof of God, we can point to morality, uh, points to a God. Now, we could go very deep with proofs of God. We could go very shallow. We're going to kind of skim just under shallow. I think these are things that you can put in your back pocket that are good. And, you know, they're convicting, and they plant seeds of doubt. All right? So these are going to be kind of simple. We could go a lot deeper. But morality, good and bad, points to a God. You know, every person is born knowing good and evil and the difference between the two. You know, I could look at Uncle Bob and say, Uncle Bob, would you agree that Adolf Hitler was a bad person? He'd say, sure, Adolf Hitler was a bad person. Well, now I've got Adolf, well, now I've got Adolf, now I've got Uncle Bob to admit that Adolf Hitler was a bad person. Well, if there's such a thing as bad, then there has to be such a thing as good. I mean, naturally, you have to have a, you know, if there's something bad, there has to be something good. There's there's opposites. If that's the case, if there is good and there is bad, then there has to be a moral law to define between the two. There has to be a moral law. And a good humanist, a good atheist, a good whatever they want to define themselves as, but a humanist at their core would say, yes, there is a moral law, and that's human subjectivity, meaning that every man gets to decide for himself what is good and what is bad. Well, there's a big problem with that. I have to lock my door at night because there's some people who think it would be good to come and kill me at night. And a humanist would say, well, no, 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 you know, that would never really happen. And the reason why is because man is inherently good. Man is naturally a good person. I find that weird because I've raised children before, and I'm still in the process of raising kids. You know, I've never had to teach my kids how to do wrong. They naturally did wrong. You know what I did have to teach them? I had to teach them how to do good. I think it's interesting how if my kids were naturally good people, I have to teach them how to do good. I have to teach them how to do good. So the answer cannot be that the subjectivity of man is the moral law. There has to be something, and by the way, we can easily point to each and every single man and woman knowing that there is a difference between right and wrong. I never really had to teach my kids in some regards. I never had to teach them that stealing was wrong. They already knew. You say, how do you know that? Because the first time they stole something, you know what they did with the object they stole? They hid it. You know why they hid it? Because they may have stolen something, but they knew. Inside, they knew, this isn't right. I can't let daddy see this. They knew it was wrong. So here's the deal. If there's good, then there's bad. If there's good and bad, then there's a moral law. Can I tell you this? There's never been a law in history that did not have a law giver. There had to be someone who put the moral law within man to help him understand the difference between good and evil. So morality itself points to the existence of God. Number three, the natural belief of of an existence of God is a proof of God. There has never been an atheist in history that was born an atheist. He was either taught atheism by someone or... There was a tragedy in his life that caused him to reject the idea of God. 
every man, every boy and girl is born with a belief that there is something greater. There is some sort of deity. There is some sort of God. You, that's why you can go to the dark jungles of whatever continent, and, and you can find a tribe of people who have never had contact with the outside world. You know what every single tribe we find has in common? They worship some sort of deity. They believe there's something greater above them, and they have a desire to try and know and to serve that person. That right there is a proof that there must be a God who created man with a, with a knowledge, an interior knowledge, knowing there is a God, and I want to know him. That tells me there must be a God. So those are some basic proofs we can give of the existence of God. And that's the first leg. Everything we believe, we stand on, number one, that there must be a God. If there's not, we might as well be an atheist. But one of the legs we stand on is the proof of the existence of God. There are many other proofs you could give, ones you may like better. Just do some research, and you'll find some that maybe you'll enjoy, maybe you find are more powerful. But these are three that I think you can take, put in your pocket, and use when talking to a humanist. Now the question is, and this is the natural question Uncle Bob would ask, he'd say, okay, maybe there might be a God, but what makes you so sure that you're serving the right one? I mean, the Hindus serve 330 million deities. What makes you so sure that you're serving the right one? And the second leg that we stand on, that everything hinges on, the second leg we stand on is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You say, how? How is that the second leg we stand on? Because the God of the Old Testament, which I claim to serve, the God of the Old Testament promised for thousands and hundreds of years that one day he would come to earth and he would be born as a man. He promised he would do that. He would come and he'd be the Savior of the world. He'd be the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. He promised he would come. Now, he said there are going to be men who come, and they're going to claim to be God. They're not going to be. Here's how you're going to be able to identify that I have truly arrived. And within Scripture, God gave 300, over 300, over 300 prophecies of things he would fulfill. So that way, when a man came along the timeline of history, we could look at all those prophecies and say, well, if he truly is God, then he had to be born here, and he had to do this, and he had to live here, and he had to go there, and he had to heal the lame, and he had to heal the blind, and he had to heal the sick, and he had to die this type of death, and this had to happen to him, and this had to happen to him. And if all those things happen, we would know that is God. Remember, he said he would come. That's him, because he fulfilled all of those prophecies. Can I just tell you, when Jesus Christ was born and he lived his life, he fulfilled over 300 prophecies of the first coming of Christ. Every single prophecy about the first coming of the Messiah, he fulfilled in his life, which tells me that really must be God. But here's where it all hinges. He gave the final cherry on top of everything when he said, I'm going to die. And he said, in three days I will rise again. He said, I have power to lay down my life, but I have power to take it up again. If he did not rise from the dead, then he could not be the God that, by the way, he said he was. He could not be. But I tell you what, I have a tendency to believe someone who fulfilled over 300 prophecies of Scripture, like how it was predicted that he would die. I mean, explicitly predicted how he would die, how the Romans would gamble over his garments in Isaiah 53, written 700 years before he was even born. I have a tendency to believe someone who fulfilled over 300 prophecies of Scripture and rose from the dead. 
His tomb is empty. I can take you to tombs of men who were worshipped as deities, and we could dig up their bones together. They're still there. But there is no bones in the tomb of Christ. Now, the question is, though, how do we prove that Jesus Christ truly did rise from the dead? I'm going to give you three, three again, and we could give more, but we're going to give three. Number one, the first proof we give of the resurrection of Christ is that Christ really died. You say, how is that a proof? The reason it's a proof is because if Christ really died, he really did live. Um, History tells us, just frankly, you cannot deny the history that there was a man named Jesus who lived according to the timeline that we know that Jesus lived and died. All right, historically, it's proven. There really was Jesus, and he really did die. All right, so Christ really did die. The reason it's important to talk about this is because there's been some who have promoted what is known as the swoon theory. The swoon theory is a theory that Jesus, because of loss of blood, went unconscious on the cross. And when they pulled down his body, they laid him in the tomb, and he woke up. And they'd say, so that's really not a resurrection. He just was swooning. He was unconscious. The problem with that is the people who promote the swoon theory have no clue what was involved in a Roman crucifixion. There has never been in history anywhere anyone who has a record of someone who survived a Roman crucifixion. You didn't. It was a way of death. They killed you through crucifixion. Not only that, but the beating that Jesus went through, the cat of nine tails beating, the whipping he went through, most men did not even survive the beating he went through. Literally, what that whip would have done is it would have ripped his chest or his uh, his stomach wide open. And literally, I'm not trying to be gross or grotesque, but his, his organs, his inner organs in his stomach area would literally have been dragging on the floor as he walked up Mount Calvary. There's no way he should have survived the whipping he, he went through. I mean, they beat him, they ripped the beard off his face, they put the crown of thorns on his head. All that should have killed him before he even saw the cross. But he survived. He made it through that. You know, the Bible says that he was so marred, his face was so marred, you couldn't even tell he was a man. And I'm not being blasphemous or being disrespectful by saying this, I'm just agreeing with Scripture and telling you what that basically is saying. When you looked at him, you would have thought you were in a butcher store looking at a piece of meat hanging on the wall because that's what he looked like. And then they put the cross and made him go all the way up to Mount Calvary. They put him on the cross, nailed his hands and his feet to the cross, put him up there, and he would die. Now, Roman crucifixion didn't kill you from loss of blood. It killed you from asphyxiation. killed you, you, you couldn't breathe anymore. You couldn't get any more air. And so what would happen is you'd have to push up and get an air, and you'd sink back down, and your arms would be hanging up there, you know, and you have to push back up on whatever your feet were attached to the cross on, and, and back and forth, back and forth, until you were literally so tired you could not get up anymore, and you would die. You couldn't breathe. That's what was involved in the Roman crucifixion. That's why they would take, if they wanted a guy to die quicker, they would take a, a rod, and they would smack his legs and break them, so he couldn't push up anymore, and he would suffocate. He would asphyxiate, I guess would be the proper term. But it's true that Christ really did die. There could be no swoon, because anybody who promotes that has no idea about the Roman crucifixion. No one has ever survived it in history. And the other thing is, practically every scholar admits that, yes, Jesus lived, and he did indeed die on the cross. The American Medical Association published a review of a scientific method study of the evidence of the death of Jesus. They said this at the end of it all, and I quote from them, Clearly, the weight of the evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. 
And uh, remember when they stuck that spear in his side to see if he was alive and blood and water came out? A sign of asphyxiation. He was dead. He was gone. There's no way he could be living. And uh, even atheist, what they call scholar, Gerd Ludman, says historically, and by the way, he doesn't have a dog in this fight, but he said historically, it's indisputable that Jesus was dead. That's the first proof of the resurrection. Because if he truly... If he truly rose again from the dead, then he had to first truly die. Number two, one thing we can point to as proof is the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. There were people who saw the resurrected Christ. For instance, you have the records of the Gospels. You have the records of the women who saw him. The records of the apostles. You have the records of the 500 who saw him. You have the records recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. There were many eyewitnesses. Many of these stories, many of these records were taken down within 20 years of Christ having died, and they have been passed down as unmarred accounts. That's historical evidence. And you say, well, you just pointed to some of Scripture as evidence that people saw Christ resurrected. I did, because someone may deny the philosophy, and they may deny the teaching of the Bible, but they cannot, they cannot um, reject the historical validity of Scripture. They can't deny the history of Scripture. The reason why is there's never been a work in history that has more, had more manuscripts that agree with the Word of God. We have over 5,000 manuscripts that agree with the eyewitness accounts of the Word of God. And then there are at least nine, at least nine, there are more, but there are at least nine different written-down records we have of eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Christ both inside and outside of Scripture. Most of history as we know it, even American history, is written from the eyes of one, two, three, maybe four eyewitnesses. But we have at least nine records of eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Christ. That is evidence. By the way, eyewitness evidence is submissible in court. It's submissible in court, which means you can literally take this proof and you can prove that Christ resurrected in a court of law. So we can point to the eyewitness accounts. Then number three, we can point to the empty tomb. The empty tomb is a sign that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And maybe Uncle Bob says, well, you don't know for sure that that was the tomb of Christ. Well, if we go back to the early records, what did the opponents of Christ say? Remember the Romans and the Jews who killed him because they said he was God? He claimed to be God. They even admitted that the tomb was empty. How do I know that? Because the disciples, when they began running around saying, he's alive, we saw him, what did they say? The opponent said, no, you stole his body. They were conceding the fact that the tomb was, in fact, empty. They did everything they could to try and keep him in, but the tomb was empty. So there you go. Those are the two legs we stand on for everything, because there's a trickle-down effect. If Jesus Christ really did arise from the dead, which we can prove in a court of law, if he did really arise from the dead, then he really must be God. If he really must be God, then his word must be true. And if his word is true, there can only be one God. And that is the God that we talk about here on Sandy Creek Stirrings. And so that's how I believe you can talk in the best way, in a simple way, to a humanist. No matter how they disguise themselves, they're rejecting the resurrection of Christ and the evidence that there really is a God. One of the things we do is we just bring it right back up to them. That, look, there's a lot of proof for the existence of God, and I know I'm serving the right one because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So I hope that helps you in answering the humanists. If you have any questions, you can always email me. My email is joshua at sandycreekstirrings.com. Again, that's joshua at sandycreekstirrings.com. Thank you for listening today. I hope this episode was a blessing to you. My friend, as you keep going through life, keep looking up and keep stirred up for the cause of Christ.